Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. We continue our series through the Gospel of John with today's episode. Last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, and this week we turn our attention to the famous discourse that supplements the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse, where Jesus spoke those profound words saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So listen in now to episode 57, I am the bread of life. Uh, so then, moving on to the bread of life discourse, and this is, you know, uh, what is uh, truly um, unique in John's gospel. Uh, in verses 22 to 25, John sets the stage, says it's now taking place on the next day on the other side of the sea, which would be the east side of the lake in Capernaum. Um, by the way, at the end of uh, chapter 6, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, but we don't exactly know at what point the scene shifts from being by the Sea of Galilee to actually being in the synagogue. Um, and uh, verse 26 features another one of those references to signs. Jesus says, truly, truly, authoritative statement by Jesus. I say to you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, people benefited physically from the miracle, but they failed to perceive the sign and so missed the true significance of the event. In other words, they failed to draw the necessary connection between Jesus' outward act and the inner spiritual reality of that act. They just had this surface perception. And of course, the, the inner spiritual significance is that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. Just like an unbeliever might look at the crucified Jesus with merely human eyes and see a miserable creature die a horrible death. And a believer, on the other hand, would look at the crucified Jesus and see the Savior die an atoning death for the sins of humanity. I think that's the all-important all difference between mere physical seeing and spiritual perception. And that's something that uh, John highlights throughout the gospel. There's whole monographs written on that kind of different types of seeing in the gospel of John. Um, he already says in the prologue, and of course the prologue sounds the, the theme for the whole gospel, we, meaning the apostles, including John, perceived his glory, perceive Jesus' glory. The Greek word there is not your run-of-the-mill word for seeing, you know, whether it's a blepo or, or you know, some, some other words. It's the word theaomai. It's a little bit more specific. And so at the risk of over-translation, um, I'm going to say, as I translate it, we perceive his glory. You know, not just physical seeing, but spiritual perception. Um, and then again, uh, following the first sign of Jesus, the turning water into wine, uh, verse 
Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So they actually put their trust in Jesus based on perceiving how that sign transcended just what he did, as amazing as that in of itself was, but um, they took it as a sign to Jesus' identity. And so they stake their life on it. Typically, and I think it's very perceptive, John points out that people are operating on an earthly plane. Nicodemus only understands earthly things, such as natural birth. Jesus tells him about needing a spiritual birth. The Samaritan woman thinks of literal water. Jesus is talking to her about living water, which is an emblem of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his followers, you know nothing about my true spiritual food, which is to do the will of the Father who sent him and to accomplish his work. So uh, we've, those are just a few examples from the, from the Cana cycle. In our context here, Jesus tells the crowd, so he's now developing this food theme, if you will, um, do not work for the food, that's verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So Jesus, I think, provides here a penetrating commentary on the human condition. We are inexorably caught up in our earthly, physical existence and tied to our need for food, shelter, and clothing. Um, and, you know, certainly in our case, having been transplanted here a year and a half ago, uh, it's so easy to get caught up in worrying about selling your house or finding a you know, place to rent or, you know, what about all the furniture and so forth, right? And allowing that gradually to kind of take over and, and consume your every waking thought. Jesus knows that is our, our human predicament. But what Jesus, I think the God-man and the incarnate Son of God wants to do for us is to lift our eyes up from our earthly existence to perceive the heavenly reality to which Jesus came to introduce us. So there's a very strong, my dissertation talked about the fact that there's a very strong uh, descent and ascent theme in John. The idea that Jesus descended from heaven to earth then performed his work, and then ascended back to heaven. I think that's very much in play here, something, of course, the, the, the Pharisees regularly are shown to misunderstand. Um, and so there's some fine irony when John records people's question to Jesus in verses 28 and 29. They ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I think that's just on so many levels, such a fascinating question, especially when you think of it in terms of first century Judaism and even the new perspective on Paul. Uh, because, you know, regardless of Paul for a moment, I definitely see a certain amount of works orientation in that particular context. And so Jesus then, his answer is even more intriguing. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who is sent. In other words, the only work, quote-unquote, God requires is putting your faith in Jesus. And of course, even 
that faith is God-given. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Um, it's that total dependence on the one who came to give his life for us that liberates us, I think, from our lesser affections, which tie us to our earthly surroundings and possessions and relationships. Certainly something that I crave very deeply uh, to grow in my love for, for God and for Jesus in that way. Be truly free to serve him. Now, ironically, we're not done yet. The crowd then applies that same kind of works-oriented, legalistic, self-effort type of thinking that the new perspective incidentally denies first century Jews largely had. Uh, they apply that not only to themselves, what works must we do, right, to earn God's favor, if you will. They ask even Jesus to say, so what sign are you going to do? Verse 30, that we may see and believe you. What work are you going to perform? A lot of performance pressure there for Jesus, right? Not really. But uh, again, you see, they point their emphasis on doing rather than being. What are you going to do? Of course, little do they realize that the order is really the other way around. You see that all the way from the prologue. Jesus' activity is a mere outflow of his identity. His doing flows from his very own being, right? Like he says in the Sermon on the Mount, the good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. So there's that integral connection between who we are and what we do. Or, you know, the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of and so forth. I mean, that, that just, you see that again and again in Jesus' teaching. Uh, later, Jesus said in, in John 14, 11, Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe an account of the works themselves. So on the secondary level, his works do have value, evidentiary value, but they're grounded in his union with the Father and uh, who he is. Now, notwithstanding, uh, people proceed to press for proof of, of Jesus' prophetic credentials. Remember, they're looking primarily as a, as a prophet, like Moses, and so they probe, our fathers, that's not verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. By this, they allude, of course, to the heavenly bread, the manna, which God provided for the Israelites through Moses in the, during the Exodus. If Jesus is the prophet, we've already seen that reference in 614, he must duplicate or even exceed the feet wrought by Moses during the Exodus. So can Jesus compete with Moses? Well, he first responds with a correction and a clarification. He says in verse 32, again, an authoritative amen, amen statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He says, okay, let's one thing get straight first. You know, let's not put Moses on the pedestal here. He was just... God's servant. He was just God's instrument. Uh, so people are wrong if they kind of elevate Moses in some sort of a, you know, he was the lawgiver. No, God was the lawgiver. Uh, he was the one who gave people the manna. And now Jesus then puts himself, he's not comparing himself with Moses. He's uh, showing that he's integrally related to the God who gave the, truly gave the manna. And then in verse 33, he says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
So, Jesus makes clear that the manna is only a preliminary foretaste of Jesus himself. You see something interesting going on in Hebrews 6 along similar lines there, by the way. Uh, preliminary foretaste of Jesus himself, who is the true antitype and fulfillment of the manna. He is the spiritual bread from heaven who will give eternal life to those who believe in him. And of course, we have a whole seminar here recently taught, Advanced Biblical Theology. I mean, you could spend literally hours on the way Jesus here appropriates the Old Testament with reference to himself. Uh, remarkable model um, Jesus provides here of doing that. He's done something a little bit similar in chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, with, remember, the bronze serpent being lifted up um, also in the wilderness. And then, kind of intriguing parallel, kind of like the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, when she is promised living water by Jesus, um, you know, where she says, uh, Sir, give me this water always. Here in verse 34, uh, people uh, ask Jesus, Sir, give us this bread always. Of course, that's uh, thick irony again, Johanna irony, because, you know, they, sounds like they're receptive, but they're really plagued by misunderstanding. They don't understand what they're talking about, and Jesus obviously perceives that. Um, they've seen him with their eyes, but they fail to believe in him, you know, in their hearts. Uh, people must look to the Son, verse 40. But John is very uh, aware that people can believe in Jesus only if the Father enables them to do that, verse 37. Um, I once have been accused of being a Calvinist uh, because people noticed that I affirm the notion of predestination and election in John's gospel. And I'm saying, hey, this is good Johanna theology. I mean, that's not Calvinism. Um, I mean, if, if Calvin picked up any biblical um, motifs, then I guess I'm a Calvinist. But as a biblical scholar, right, I'm not ultimately operating within a 16th century framework. I'm trying to operate within a first century framework as much as possible. Now, so as I mentioned, the crowds were willing to eat the bread Jesus gave them, but they're unwilling to receive his teaching, to receive his spiritual instruction, where he tells them about the deeper spiritual significance of the sign he's just performed. So this is why the, 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 the bread of life discourse is just a crucial supplement that John gives us, you know, in addition to the way the, the miracle is narrated in the other Gospels. There's one reason why I just love John's Gospel so very much. Um, there's an interesting dynamic, by the way, um, in this regard, you know, where you have Jesus performing a sign, he feeds the multitudes, and then in chapter 6, verse 31, People are asking Jesus, what sign are you going to do? So they're basically betraying that they missed the sign. It's like, oh no, you missed it. He's already done it. You know, and so what does Jesus do? Does he perform a sign? No. He just explains the significance of the sign he's already performed that they missed. And so my point is, he does the same thing in chapter 2, verse 18, where he cleanses the temple. And then people saying, what sign are you going to show us? You know, it's proof for your authority. And again, he doesn't do another sign. He just explains that 
the sign he just performed, clearing the temple, um, was a sign of God's judgment on the temple. Um, of course, his body being the true temple, which was destroyed and then raised three days later. So that's a little bit complex, but, but I think when you studied closely, as I've done, you see that there's the same kind of dynamic at work, uh, which involves signs, involves people's misunderstanding, and then involves Jesus's clarification and explanation of what the sign means. Now, there's the signs are not necessarily self-evident. Um, they, uh, they require messianic interpretation. All right, so then as, as we see the further interaction, and I'm not going to spend quite as much time on this, uh, it becomes increasingly clear people lack the spiritual perception that they need to receive Jesus' difficult teaching. They are turned off by language that they need to drink Jesus' blood, which was, of course, deeply offensive to, to Jews. Uh, don't realize that this was just a metaphor. And as a result, even many of his disciples no longer follow him. That's very striking in the Greek because it, there uses the word mathetes, which is used for the 12 as well, um, and the word akolutheo, which means follow. And in both cases, those are the very thing. The disciples, the Mathetai, who follow Jesus, who now no longer do. So you see, for John, this is not yet kind of set in stone. You may be a disciple following Jesus at one point, but then, you know, you decide, it's not for me. It's a little bit like the parable of the sower and the soils there, you know, where you have saving faith, you know, but then you also have faith that is fleeting, and, and, you know, temporary. Um, and of course, you have the watershed here. Jesus asked the disciples, do you want to go as, away as well? Uh, Simon Peter speaks for the entire group. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are fairly rare in the Gospels, also in John. You are the Holy One of God. Uh, and in response, Jesus makes clear Peter's confession is proof of the twelves election. And yet, Judas is a devil, a traitor, who would betray him in order that scripture may be fulfilled. So just by way of conclusion here, uh, we've come to the end of the fairly in-depth study of the feeding of the 5,000, just within the larger framework of the festival cycle in John 5 through 10. Um, while John coheres in all the specific external details of the event, uh, with what we know from the other Gospels, earlier Gospels. Uh, he's the only one who supplements the narrative with an extended discourse. And this discourse, as I've attempted to show at some length, adds significantly to our understanding of the inner dynamic and deeper purpose of the miracle. In this vintage transposition of a synoptic presentation, John shows that the external event of the feeding is just the outer shell. The heart of a feeding is the person doing the feeding, which is Jesus himself. And the physical bread, the multitudes are given to eat, is nothing but a pointer to the spiritual bread, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven to give his life for them as the Lamb of God, so that by believing they may become God's children and receive eternal life. I think this is the watershed moment that separates remote followers of Jesus who enjoy some of the passing temporary benefits of God's provision from true believers and disciples who grasp 
the significance of these benefits and by God's grace, uh, penetrate more deeply to the inner meaning of what those benefits are designed to teach them about Jesus. In other words, let's not, even as Christians, get hung up on some of the perks that might come with, you know, teaching at a seminary or, you know, whatever other privileges we might have. You know, we need to remember that those are just extraneous to what it means to know Jesus. And also I find often in our churches, there's this illusion that virtually everybody or even most people are disciples of Jesus. In the gospels, we learn that, you know, the gate is narrow and few are the ones who enter it. So I increasingly proceed, even going to church on the assumption that there's only going to be a minority of people who have truly staked their lives in following Jesus. And of course, my heart long said that everyone will do so, but at the same time, being realistic, I think the Gospels tell us that not too many are willing to really pay the price of, of um, forsaking all earthly goods and trusting in Jesus. And again, more could be said about this. So um, last point here, and then we'll, we'll break for coffee. Um, unlike the other three Gospels, John, which is really striking, doesn't feature a single parable. No parables in John. And yet he has some sort of functional equivalent of that, I think, which is uh, his symbolic discourses, where he provides extended comparisons between a natural and a spiritual way of perceiving who Jesus is and what he does. And I think as he does so, John calls us to a certain kind of discerning perception of Jesus' messianic nature and his mission that enables us to join the ranks of true followers of the Messiah and to participate along with them in Jesus' mission in this world. Just as Jesus told his original followers after the resurrection, he still tells us today, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.